Greetings and blessings to you, listeners. My name is Sunshine Trisiter, and I am bringing you the Pagan Perspectives podcast. I am journeying around the world, and as I do, I am calling together the voices of the Pagan community. So make yourself a cup of tea and come and join us for an inspirational sharing of Pagan voices. Hear a song of time gone by The ancient ones are calling out And they sing a song of old And their words will carry And their song will carry us home Hear a song of time gone by The ancient ones are calling out And they say They call you home, 
just listening to Ancient Ones, a song by Kellyanna. Please check out all the links to her music in the program notes. Now let us turn to my interview with Lar Dooley. He is a gatekeeper, an ancestral storyteller, and a spiritual guide. He is based in Loch Crew, which is in County Meath, Ireland. He brings us wisdom from our ancestors. So let us tune in. Blessed be. Uh, my friend, Lar Dooley, I am so happy to have you here on the Pagan Perspectives show again. Thank you so much for joining us. I'd like to tell the listeners a little bit about who you are as a caretaker and, and you're a teacher as well in the Indigenous Irish ways. I met you at Locru. I recognized you as a brother and I am so grateful so welcome, Lar Dooley. Will you please create the space by invoking your prayer? I would love to, Sunshine. Thanks very much. And it's beautiful meeting you again. The prayer I normally use is, um, is an indigenous prayer uh, common to communities around the world, but uh, something that I have done in other communities. And it's quite a simple prayer. We acknowledge the traditional and spiritual owners and occupiers of this land and this landscape, past, present, and future. We come here in dignity and respect to walk in your footsteps, in their footsteps, and we invite the spirits of the land and the spirits of the ancestors to join us in this communication if they so wish to do so. Aho. Aho. Beautiful, thank you. Can you tell our listeners about Locru? Okay, Locru is a very sacred and very ancient place. It's the roots of what I would call the Boyne Valley culture. Some of your listeners may be aware of the Boyne Valley in relation to Newgrain, um, maybe even Nelt or Delt, the three big cathedrals of indigenous Irish spirituality in the Boyne Valley region. But the spiritual, the spiritual focus and the origins of this culture are quite possibly on the Lockrew Hills. It is a very ancient space. It does have an ancient name. Its ancient name is Tiaur in Bregan. So Tiaur, the Gaelic word Tiaur, comes from the ancient Gaelic word Temur, and it means a place of eminence on a hilltop, a sacred space on a hilltop and tower in Brega. Brega is the ancient kingdom of Brega, which encompassed most of what is, what is County Meath in Ireland at the moment. So slightly above the middle of the country and over towards the east coast, the right-hand side of the country. Um, Brega was quite a substantial kingdom. And a tower or the sacred sanctuary uh, encompasses about um, 30 to 35 what are called passage chambered cairns and passage chambered cairns are man-made structures on the hilltops they are very ancient spiritual temples to our indigenous grandmother who in Ireland we call Ancaioch 
on Kalyok, uh, derives from the Gaelic word Kalya, meaning a veil. So on Kalyok literally means the veiled one. Uh, she is quite possibly depicted in um, an ancient rock carving uh, in the passage chamber of a uh, structure known as Cairn T, uh, on top of Sleeve Nakalyach, who was named for her. And this Sleeve, and Sleeve translates as a hill or a mountain. So this hill is the highest hilltop in County Meath. So when the indigenous um, ancestors came to Ireland, they traveled up the Boyne Valley and their intention was to head, head to the highest hilltop because they came out of the fertile crescent in the Mediterranean region, a region which in biblical times was uh, the temples on the shores of the Mediterranean Sea were destroyed in the biblical flood. And so when all their ancient temples were destroyed, they started moving the more inland and up on the higher spaces. So when they came to Ireland and sailed up the Boyne Valley, they did not build on the bend of the Boyne, on the lower reaches of the Boyne, where Newgrange, Nout and Dout are. They moved much further inland and up and upland and headed for the highest hilltop in County Meath, which is Sleivnacolyuk. And it's the centre monument in the tower or the sacred sanctuary of Loch Crew, as it's called in, in modern times. And so a passage chamber is constructed by, on, on the hilltops around here, there are a lot of uh, what we might call debris, I suppose, in many ways, but uh, glacial erratic, so very large um, boulders in limestone, which are stratified and can be split apart. So they could split these large stones, which are basically close to six foot long and four foot wide. They would break these into layers, which are about uh, 150 millimeters or six inches thick. These stones, they would stand upright on one end. They'd bury the bottom into the ground and they, they will put a matching stone from the same stone on the opposite side, about a meter or a yard apart, three feet apart. And on top of that, they will put another flat stone on the roof. So it's like building a deck of cards uh, with two upright cards and another card flat across the top. And if you build a series of these in a row, it creates what's called a passage. And the passage enters into what is called the central core. Uh, and the central core of these passage chambers uh, would normally have a left-hand recess a right-hand recess, so a small little alcove built in on each side, and another alcove built in the front in the, what's called the central recess. Um, and these chambers are, the older ones are normally cruciform in shape. In other words, they have, um, they have a long passage. They have uh, a right-hand uh, rectangular space on each side and rectangular space to the front of the entrance passage. And above this is what's called a corbelled ceiling or a corbelled roof. And a corbelled roof is created by putting very heavy lintel stones across the entrance passage and the three little recesses. So you have more or less um, a rectangular base for a corbelled roof, which is built in a circular manner by building large uh, roofing stones, uh, which are tilted at a very slight angle upward 
So each uh, circle of stones comes smaller as, as an extra layer of stone is added in and then an extra layer. So in turn, e each layer of corbel stones, um, which are slanting upwards, um, uh, the center core in between becomes narrower and until eventually it's closed with one stone, which is called a capstone. And that is dry stone masonry making like a beehive formation, correct? Exactly. Exactly. That's correct. Yeah. So there are no, it, this is way before the invention of concrete or cement, which was to all intents and purposes, um, a Roman invention. So we're talking 6,000 years old. So 3,000 years at least before the Romans came into vogue and 4,000 years before the Celts came into vogue. So way, way before even uh, Celtic uh, the rise of the Celtic uh, peoples in, in the Germanic Basin um, around 800 years BC. Um, we, these cairns were built like three and a half to 4,000 years before the birth of, of the prophet known as Christ. Yeah. So um, the funny thing is, when it came time to build early Christian churches, they followed the same format as the passage chambers, in that most early Christian churches are actually built in a cruciform shape. And the entrance door to these churches always faces east to the sunrise, which is the way the passage chambers were built. A lot of the scientific people who come from the archaeological community would reckon that these places are tombs or is a structure that is aligned with uh, the eight divisions of the ancient year. The most basic way of understanding them, they are very ancient clocks that break the solar, the solar year into eight individual parts. Uh, when the ancestors came to Ireland first, the only two times they really knew was winter solstice and summer solstice. And they were trying to grow two crops called emmer and spelt wheat, which are incredibly difficult to grow and come from a very warm climate. So in order to, neither of these days obviously were any use for growing wheat. So they split their year into four by finding the two days we know as equinox. The equinox is a time when day and night are of equal length. So 12 hours of daylight and 12 hours of night. They occur in both spring and autumn. And the equinox comes from the Latin again, equinox, equal night. By aligning the sunlight in Cairn in Tea with the sunrise on these two days, um, they came up with, with uh, a way of breaking the year into four. So the four solar festivals, sun festivals, which are which are the two solstices and the two equinoxes. So Karn T in Lakru is aligned to receive the sunrise on the spring and the fall equinox, but there are other Karns up there. You said it was Karn L that's aligned to Samhain to receive the sunrise on Samhain. That's correct. Yeah. So. In order to grow the crops, which is a focus that is very much lost with regard to the reason for the structure of the cairns or the, or the uh, creation of the cairns, was to grow crops which were normally would have been grown in a far higher temperature. So in order to, to get the soil temperature in Ireland um, 
at the correct at the correct temperature to germinate the seed, they had to break the year up again because equinox spring equinox was too cold. Autumn equinox was warm enough, but it uh, emerald spelt wheat need a period of close to six months grow to fruition uh, and be able to be harvested. So for that reason, they broke the 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 year into eight parts. And the other four parts are normally referred to as the fire festivals, and they are Imbolg or Imbolg, uh, Imbolg in the, from the Gaelic Imbolg in my belly, um, Beltina or Bealtina or Beltini, uh, Beltina from the ancient Gaelic Beltina, the melt of the fire, uh, because it was a time when the animals and the people were blessed by driving them to, through two fires, a male fire and a female fire. After that comes the festival of Lunasa. Uh, it's called after the god Lu who created the festival, but he created it in memory of his foster mother called Tal Tu. And it's the first harvest, the harvest of the barley crop, which was a survival crop they had. And the next festival then is Saun. And Saun is in and around the 5th of November. It's the 7th of November this year, 2020. Um, and that is the final harvest, the time when the, when the main crops of emerald spelt wheat were germinated and the women would have brought gifts of corn and bread into the passage chamber cairns and laid them on the huge big offertory basins as thanks for a food which meant their survival. And uh, ancient paganism very, very much is related to uh, Mother Nature herself and the phases of the sun and the moon and how the phases of the sun and the moon uh, combined to create the food that we as humans grow and harvest. And these people were the very first people to come into Ireland and actually grow products. Before this, we only had a hunter-gatherer culture which, can, which go back maybe 10 or 11,000 years. But the first farmers came into Ireland about 6,000 years ago and began growing the crops which Basically, with, with, the, with the success of spelt wheat and emmer wheat, they were able to uh, extend the human life, which, this, which in, in the early Neolithic, a, a woman's lifespan was about 26 years, and a man's lifespan was about 28 years. So with the coming of the, this uh, huge supply of grain and the first breads that were created on the land, we were able to extend our, our our life energy up to the maybe the year of the, the age of into the thirties and maybe even forties at this stage. So it was a huge expanse of food that drove a huge expansion in health and energy. And we can see that reflected in the fact that the community came together to build these amazing carns and stone circles and these megalithic monuments with bones and antlers and no Iron Age tools to come together to have that many people and that much manpower, it must have been a time of peace. Yes, there, there would have been great peace on the land for the simple reason that it was all about survival. So in many ways, the older people probably even gave up on their own life in order to ensure that the younger ones survived because the younger ones were the ones that were capable of doing the building work uh, and carrying on their life's mission. In many ways, an awful lot of the cairns that were built 
um, would never have been seen by the people who started the work, especially when we get to uh, the bend of the Boyne and the huge monuments like Newgrange, which would have taken possibly 100 years to build. So even in, you mentioned Cairnell there, at the entrance door to Cairnell, there is a beautiful rock art carving of four or five, it's, it's quite worn, so quite a little bit indistinguishable, but four or five females sitting around the fire pit, planning something which will represent 12 generations of the people on the landscape. When we move inside that monument, and there is a beautiful carving stone which is aligned, as you said, with the sunrise on sound and in bulk. Uh, on this carving stone, it shows a, a series of 13 concentric circles, meaning that at this stage when the passage was, was created and the rock carvings were complete, there was actually 13 generations of people on the landscape. So it basically took between one and two generations of the people in Loch Crewe to build Cairnell. And it is a magnificent space with seven recesses in it and a very large open celebratory area, larger than uh, Newgrange in many ways, right? you know, um, a beautiful space to gather. And as I said, the indigenous grandmothers who were the power base behind them. Paganism was driven by the sacred feminine and represented by the female, of course. So a lot of our ancient goddesses are female, and it would have been, the, in many ways, of bringing um, the crops and the corn and the bread and the fruit and the berries and all the food that the, that the women had gathered uh, into the cairn as thanks and a celebration for the bountiful supply of food that was given. When we came to, to the later Neolithic stage, um, and the greater monuments of Newgrange, the fact that they had a, a corn that could be stored. So emmer and speltweed have a very hard husk, so they can be thrown into a bowl or thrown into a hole in the ground or, or thrown into a little stone structure and stored for months. And as soon as you break open the kernel, the corn is there to make the flour. So this was a huge, this meant that they had food to sow to support them right through their winter. And it was the first time that they that they had a solid food supply for, for 52 weeks of the year. Well, for the eight periods of the year, because that's how they measured the year in the Neolithic. Hmm. Can you tell us about some of the things you've learned from the rock art that are in the monuments at Locru? Okay, basically what distinguishes the monuments in Locru from the other more ancient monuments around the uh, around the country, and you have been, I know, to Carol Keel and Carol Moore, and you know many of the other megalithic cemeteries. The big distinguishing factor between um, Loch Crewe and the monuments on the west coast of Ireland, which are Carol Moore and Carol Keel, is the substantial amount of carved rock art inside the passages um, and in many ways this is the very basis for indigenous spirituality it is a form of carving um, and it is symbolic art in other words there is no writing and in many ways there probably was even no language at this stage it could have been a series of guttural sounds so you're sitting in the darkness you're waiting 
patiently for the sun to rise and come up over the horizon. And as the sun begins to peak over the horizon, all of a sudden the sunlight starts to enter this close womb-like. And they are very womb-like chambers. And as the sun comes in, it performs a series of interpretations of the rock art. So as the sun's being moves in slowly into the passage and into the central chamber, one after the other, all these stones suddenly begin to light up. And the effect of the light uh, coming in at the, at the edge of the stone rather than frontwards highlights the carvings in such a way as to, even now, to look at these carvings five and a half thousand years later, when they have been blasted by hail and rain and wind and acid, you know, acid pollution, you can still, by actually putting uh, an oblique light shining sideways onto the stone, the carvings leap out at you. And um, these are so incredibly detailed. Um, and they were carved by a man or a woman. I'm not distinguishing between one or the other. Holding a lump of flint in one hand and gently tapping it with a stone. Tap, 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 tap. And they created circles by... Tapping, tapping, tapping. So it's like uh, biting on a bit of um, leather or on a bit of gold with your right tooth and you get this small little impression. Um, all these small little impressions gradually built up to create a carving. And each of these stones is so incredibly detailed that some of them must literally have taken months to carve. So as the sunlight comes into the passage and lights up these incredibly detailed stones, you get this amazing rush of spiritual energy. And if there are people in, inside in the passage waiting for this to happen, even these days, the silence is deafening. People just sit and look at these uh, carvings and say, oh, wow, you know what I mean? And in many ways, it's an awful pity that we can't interpret these. We can interpret some of them. I was spiritually married to a Maori lady who lived in, in Sydney in Australia, and she had very many friends in the Aboriginal community. And one, one gentleman in particular from the Aboriginal community saw an artwork of mine and basically helped me to decipher the meaning of what the equinox stone is. So each of these carved stones has a very real meaning. Um, so in this way, we are now talking about a series of 30 to 35 cairns. Each of them would have had their own incredibly detailed art. So each of them is an individual art gallery in its own right, but an incredible temple to pagan, ancient indigenous Irish spirituality of the pagan form, of course. It has, it, this is way before any religion was even thought of, you know what I mean? So we're talking basically five and a half thousand years ago. Um, so three and a half thousand years before the coming of the prophet known as Christ, uh, maybe 2000 years before the beginnings of Judaism. And, you know, I'm not sure about how far back Buddhism extends, but ancient pagan spirituality in many ways forms the foundations for modern day religion. If, as, as I said, um, the ancient passage chambered cairns are actually built 
the same way as as our older Christian churches and temples are. They are cruciform in shape. They the door faces the the sunrise, and uh, I don't do religion in in many ways. But I was brought up in the Catholic faith, and outside a Catholic church or in the entrance lobby to a Catholic church, you pause and you bless yourself with what's called holy water, water that has been blessed by by the the clergy in the church on a specific date, which I can't remember. But this is a following on from a very ancient tradition, which which uh, most people who come to Loch Crew will experience. There is a beautiful well right beside the Loch Crew Megalithic Centre. In front of this well is um, a very ancient stone where the people, basically the women, would have stood and they would have blessed themselves um, spiritually. So a process called spiritual cleansing where you wash your face, then you wash your feet, and then you wash your hands, and then you sit down in, in peace and you meditate or you bring your body into spiritual alignment with the entities of the land and the spirits of the ancestors. And only when you are at peace and that spiritual peace, do you then walk into what's called a tower. So, or a sacred sanctuary. So by only bringing positive spiritual energy into these spaces over a period of basically 5,000 years, you, cre you create uh, a space which even now has this amazing spiritual energy about it. And I'm not talking uh, only inside the cairns, but even on the approach slope up, uh, there is this beautiful energy that practically sucks you up the hill. You know, you may be tired, you may be worn out, you may be sore, but as soon as you come in off the main road and you do a little acceptance prayer like what I stated at the beginning of the program, where you acknowledge the spiritual energies and the spiritual entities of the land, then you are practically sucked, sucked up this hill uh, into, the, into the sacred space. And it happens on all three hills. So, again, it, it's a process of coming to a well, cleansing yourself at the well, and then entering what's called a tower. Uh, the same thing happens in a space close by, which is also part of the Boyne Valley culture. And many, many of your listeners may know of the Hill of Tara. So the Hill of Tara, if you look at the signpost of the Hill of Tara, above the Hill of Tara is the ancient name Tower or a spiritual sanctuary. Again, when you go to Tara, there were seven wells all around the hill. So anybody who entered the sacred space stopped and cleansed themselves at a well first. Um, I do have a, a wee poem I wrote many years ago, which explains the process of spiritual cleansing or, or the appreciation for, for the energies of the land when you come when you come into sacred space, um, if you would like me to recite it, I have no problem in doing so. Please share that with us. Okay, so the poem I, I might explain first of all, I was standing at the well, I had walked down on my bare feet from the hostel, which is about uh, 100 meters or 100 yards from the well. Um, as I came down to the ground, obviously with the frozen ground, my feet were freezing cold. So I came down to the well and I stood in the waters of the well, which were flowing quite freely at the time. And because my feet were, were quite cold, the water 
had the appearance of being quite warm, which it obviously wasn't. But however, it was a lot warmer than the frosted ground. So the poem goes, hands held forward to greet you, palms upward in peaceful declaration, feet warm in the flow of ancestral waters, cleansing the human from the wise old soul. Looking towards ancestral hills, I feel you. Peace reigns now you gather round me. Lungs fill with ancestral breath. Oh, how deeply I breathe you. Man dreams not of jewels or gold, trinkets that shine in hands so cold. Wise men rule by deeds of hand, their people prosper on fertile land. Those who rule with wanton hands will never leave these mortal lands, nor learn to breathe with ancestral breath. Oh, how deeply I breathe you. The sun breaks out on mortal lands, coming to join these faithful bands that climb again these ancient hills and wonder at those ancient skills that brought life where once the wolf was king. The sun lights softly on ancestral skin, ancestral forms breathing ancestral breath. How deeply I breathe you. Aho. Thank you. That was so beautiful. So, Lark, you are writing a book. Tell us about this and how people can support this book. Well, um, the book is actually written. Um, so, the book was written in 10 chapters. But um, in keeping with the ancient traditions, um, where, where in many ways the number three is the most sacred and most significant number in our ancient culture, the book has been broken into three internal books, each of three chapters. So in many ways, it represents the sacred three of the sacred three of the sacred three. Um, and each book uh, represents the divinity of the sacred feminine, so the first uh, book uh, of three chapters is called Maiden, uh, which is the Gaelic word for maiden. The second book is called Maher, uh, which is the Gaelic word for mother. And the third book is called Shanwaher, uh, which is the Gaelic for grandmother. So it's the mother or the maiden, the mother and the grandmother, sometimes referred to as the crown, but I prefer grandmother. <laughs> um, Crone does not really describe most of the beautiful elderly females I know. The elders of what I would consider um, um, a spiritual tribe in many ways. And the elders um, are, be are beautiful entities in their own right. And I think the word crone it might be a bit disrespectful to them. I prefer the word grandmother. And many of them indeed are grandmothers and even great grandmothers. So it's a beautiful continuation of life. 
each of the three books has what's at the end of it has what's called a sacred journey or more or less a vision quest. So the first vision quest is in Lockcrew itself, a vision quest up at Kenty, uh, and a, po- uh, a story and a poem that is called um, Last Night as King of Brega, a journey where the King of Brega decided that there was enough hate and dissent in the land. Um, so a much later period than the foundations of the Cairn, but he's coming back to the Cairn. And the Cairn, the ancient structures, were what gave him his power base, his strength as the king of Brega. So he's coming back to the space where he was crowned, where he coronized on, on the chair you've seen there, coronation seat, often called the Hag's chair. Um, and he's thinking about his life um, and the life he led running around the hills of Loch Crew, uh, hunting deer and boar and, and the magnificent time he had and how unfortunately time has passed. But now he's in probably his 50s or 60s and he has decided many times he was called to be the High King of Ireland and to rule from Tara, which is not too far away from the kingdom below Brega. But he had uh, at all times he had refused to do this because he wanted to keep the sanctity of uh, Brega, where the women were treated with the greatest of respect and where the indigenous uh, females and the feminine energy was the power base behind the king himself. He was a single man he hadn't married. Um, the ancient tradition said that when a king was, was coronized, he took on the wife of the previous king. I don't mean took it on in a derogatory manner, but invited her to continue in her reign as queen. But unfortunately, the king who preceded him had been widowed before he lost his own life and moved to spirit. And so when the king of Brega became uh, this beautiful king at a very young age, he decided enough of this war and dissension. What we need to do is pull the people together and create a kingdom that will inspire people to create beauty and to respect both the sacred, the sacred feminine, both in in uh, in the human form and in the form of the sacred feminine itself on the landscape, the trees and the water and the skies and the clouds and the animals that are on the landscape. The second journey is uh, a journey called from Tara to Pokai Tara. Pokai Tara was a Maori lady uh, who I spiritually married. Her name was Ani Ruihi Anihana. And in one of her stages of um, renal kidney cancer, she was unconscious in in her bed in Sydney, and I she gave me a life journey, which was to find an amulet to bring her back to life. So I spent the day walking around the hill of Tara looking for an amulet, and I found this beautiful stone between two boughs of a hawthorn tree. I extracted it and put it in my pocket. I went to a, a second well to cleanse myself, and I found there a crystal. And I decided that the crystal had far more importance in my ignorance and in um, and in my inhumility. I decided that I knew what was the perfect gift for the woman who was my spirit bride. So when I actually got to Dublin to post um, to post the amulet to her, I couldn't find the crystal. So I was told instead to put this stone. And it's only when I held it in my hand and I felt a beautiful energy of a stone that had been formed in a shape by centuries of two hawthorne bells rubbing uh, off the stone on, on, a sacred, on a sacred boundary on the hill of Tara, 
I realized um, oh what an idiot I was and you know so anyway the sacred stone went to it was a very plain very smelly stone I might say so but when it went to Anise hand and she had been unconscious for three hours at this stage when the stone was put into her hand she would had been in a coma for uh, approximately three weeks her hand immediately clenched tightly on the stone and when the nurses smelt this horrible odor coming from the stone and it came over and they tried to put stone or spoons and a knife into her hand to try and force her hand open to take this horrible stinking <laughs> stone from you know from an ancient hill in Ireland out of her hand they just couldn't do it and uh, some six hours later um, that lady awoke from her coma and it's just a beautiful representation of the power of spirit and how with, when we put uh, intent into a sacred object that that sacred object in actual fact can work miracles the third, the third um, sacred journey is uh, a space where you joined myself and our brother Kit uh, during your visit to Caramore a beautiful uh, ancient dolmen, one of the most ancient structures in Ireland, um, and where I had a vision of a beautiful lady dressed in seal skin who brought her her grandson to to uh, carry a cremation urn in, inside the dolmen with the ashes of his mother. And it turned out that the little boy who carried this little bowl of ash who brought me to tears and I'm in tears even saying this at the moment was myself in the previous life some 5,800 years ago but that was just another beautiful journey so it is a beautiful book and um, uh, you know um, it's not designed to make money it will sell for about 20 euro or 25 dollars and it will be po posted around the world from Ireland because I actually believe that it's right to uh, keep this sacred energy local. So it's been printed by a local printer. Um, and so I am trying to crowdfund the book. The book is called Out of the Darkness. So it refers in many ways, each chapter ends with the statement, when we come out of the darkness and into the light. And it is, um, in many ways, an expression of the many ways uh, we can learn about our indigenous spirituality if we actually go and stay in these spaces in the beautiful hours of darkness. So if we, go, if we go up at sunset and we sit through the night in these spaces and commune with spirit and with the spirits of the land and the spirits of the ancestors, we then take on this beautiful energy in ourselves. And rather than constantly harping on the scientists and the archeologists who go in and dig these places up and find bits of bone and, and try and tell us uh, the story according to what they find. In many ways, the story is not what they find, but what they don't find because uh, indigenous spirituality and paganism is about something that the mortal world and this scientific world and this world that puts so much value on gold and money just simply can't understand. It doesn't have a monetary value, so how can they understand it? <laughs> you know, you don't pay to go into a pagan temple like you do go into a Christian or in, into any other temple in modern times. You're invited to come in here as a spiritual entity and you are made welcome so long as you 
come and you say a prayer of acceptance and in you invite the ancestral spirits to come and join you on your journey, you are at that stage asking them to invite you to join them on their journey. And then you hear their story from 5,000 years ago. And that's basically what the book is about, is about the spiritual um, entities, the spiritual energies that are in Lockrill. Mm. It was such an honor to be in that portal tomb. Is it a portal tomb that we were in in Karakil? The archaeological community would call them a portal tomb. I would prefer call them a dolmen or a cromlech in, in our in our uh, indigenous language cromlech but dolmen um and in in fact they are tombs um and what what the story i recounted to you which is the story in the book um is a story of a young boy bringing his mother's ashes to be buried inside a portal so i don't have a problem in calling these spaces tombs yeah mm. However, uh, passage chambers were specifically designed to work um, as a marker of a particular time of the year. It doesn't make sense to say they were designed to fill them up with bones because then the sunlight wouldn't be able to get in. So they were designed with a large offertory platter uh, inside in which to bring the grains and the fruit and the roots of the land and the berries and the and the nettles as, as tea. And of course, this is the foundation of what we call in Christianity Harvest Sunday, when people actually bring bread and berries and flour. And, and all these offer, offerings are brought up to the altar and gifted to, to uh, the Christian God. And it's a continuation again of the pagan, of the pagan practice of giving thanks for our food. Um, and if you eat in community, uh, or if you eat in communities aligned with pagan tradition, uh, you know you will be asked to give thanks for your food before you eat it. You know because give thanks to the animals and the vegetables and the minerals that gave us our food. You know it is part of the spiritual world, um, and we have to acknowledge their sacrifice in order to uh, encourage us or uh, give us the strength to grow and to procreate. Um, mm. in much the same way as we provide them a safe space hopefully where they can grow and procreate but it is up to us to um, include uh, the winged animals and the hoofed animals and the crawlers and the slinkers who exist in the world they have as much right to us or to live on this planet as we do we yes. can't decide in this mad alpha male energy that's running the world today that only man has a right to exist, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, this world exists as a very complex ecosystem of which man is only one element. Or uh, when I say man, of course, I mean male and female. Yes, uh, homo sapiens. Mm. So you are currently crowdfunding for your book, Tell how our listeners can support you in this. Well, there there is a GoFundMe page attached to my uh, to my Facebook page. Uh, I am on Facebook as Lara Dooley. As far as I know, I'm the only Lara Dooley because 
I deserve to be a truly unique human being. <laughs> I am. I am a joke, of course. No, but they can find me at Lar L A R Dooley D O L E Y. Um, my profile will have something to do with stones, or as a matter of fact, I must put um, I must put the cover of uh, of the book up, up on my profile page, so people will know. Uh, I am asking for a donation to help publish the book, but I would specify that if the, donat uh, the donation will actually uh, accrue a copy of the book when the book is published. So it's actually a way of, um, of selling a book before it is published. Um, I don't have the funds to publish the book. And as far as from all accounts uh, at the moment, it looks like Ireland has gone back into lockdown over this COVID-19, <clears throat> which I won't say much more about. Yeah, so it is, uh, there are no tourists here. The tourist industry in Lockrew was decimated this year with people, with uh, restrictions on people's movements. So um, if there had been um, a full year's tourism here, the book could have been funded by, I do private tours here. Um, I do private tours here. I don't charge. I believe in... Uh, I believe my position here is as an educator of people. I do like to bring people on an hour or a two hour or even a three hour walk and explain how this beautiful space functions. And the book is derived from this. It explains how a sacred tower uh, functions and the very basics of indigenous Irish spirituality. And I'm not being nationalist when I say indigenous Irish spirituality because it is not confined to the island of Ireland it is part of our gene pool as Western European uh, people of a Western European origin um, the ancestors that came here came from the Mediterranean basin they came here five or six thousand years ago in that five and six thousand years uh, people have moved in and out of Ireland in a consistent flow of both energy and human form that that went to the Americas, that went to the Canadas, went to Australia, went to New Zealand, went to the Middle East, you know, went to Britain and Europe. So indigenous Irish spirituality is in the gene pool of so many people around the world. Anybody who identifies as Irish or even Celtic um, would have a, few, a huge interest in understanding the very basics of what this actually means and uh, the beautiful indigenous spirituality that came out of the passage chambers here spread all around the world and there are approximately 40 million people in america who would identify as being irish and possibly 10 million people in in the greater uk who would identify as being of irish origin and this book of course um applies to their understanding of who they are as indigenous people. So we must allow for the fact that um, I am a Fangai Maori, I'm adopted into the Maori culture, and many people would see the Maori culture as indigenous, but the Maori people only originated with the foundation of, New, of Aotearoa, uh, New Zealand, in the 1400s. So the Maori culture is very little more than 600 years old. 
whereas indigenous Irish chamber skins all over the Iberian Peninsula, uh, up into France, across uh, across England and Cornwall and Scotland, and over into Ireland and up into the Orkneys, um, they all come from the same indigenous culture. And it's important that we, as people who see our origins in the west coast of France, or the west coast of Europe and the British Isles, also understand that we have an indigenous footprint on this land. We are indigenous to the European basin and the, Euro the European uh, continent. And we have uh, as much a right to anybody else to understand our roots and how important our roots are and how far they go back, way before the Ro Roman and the Greek and the Egyptian cultures in the Mediterranean basin. Uh, indigenous peoples lived on the islands or on the islands of the, the British Isles and on the west coast of, of Europe. And why shouldn't we claim our right to be seen as indigenous people? Thank you for sharing all of this with us, Lar. Is there an email or a different website for people to order the book? Yes, there is. Uh, there is a Facebook page created and, it will, and it's called uh, Out of the Darkness, which is the name of the book. It's not functioning properly yet because I don't, I don't want people to feel under any obligation that they have to buy a book that doesn't exist yet. So in many ways, uh, the crowdfunding um, will produce the book. And at that stage, um, I will be sharing a, a lot of... Um, a lot of the book's contents and the photographs um, uh, onto this page. There are uh, artworks from nine very well-known Irish Gaelic uh, Celtic uh, artists, such as Jim Fitzpatrick, who created the beautiful image of uh, Shea Guevara, which uh, anybody who's alive the, the uh, Shea Guevara poster. So this was an artist called Jim Fitzpatrick, who is also a very established artist working in beautiful uh, uh, Celtic art. Uh, uh, another artist called Courtney Davis, who works on the Hill of Tara, has also um, offered an artwork. A gentleman you probably met called Sean Fitzgerald, who um, who lives in Donegal, another fantastic Celtic artist. Uh, our friend uh, Santiago, Seamus Deville, has also contributed uh, an artwork. I think there may even be one of mine there. And, uh, you know, there are there are beautiful works of art. There are fantastic photographs taken over a period of, of 10 years. And um, some of my own poetry is in there as well. And I, I like my own poetry, of course, yeah, but um, it does have a special significance uh, attached to the book, yeah. So it is my life journey in many ways. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing with us your wisdom and your insights. Thank you so much for teaching us these ways. It has been an absolute pleasure as always, Sunshine. Wonderful. And listeners, please check out Lar Dooley on Facebook. He has a crowdfunding GoFundMe site and to support this book. And we want to support you. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right. <laughs> blessed be. And would you would you send us out with another prayer, a blessing? I most certainly will. Bless these eyes so I can see the beauty of the world that surrounds me. 
Bless these ears so I can hear only good from far and near. And bless this mind so I can glean peace, serenity, and things serene. Thank you so much for listening and good night. Blessed be. So much love. And that was my interview with Lar Dooley. Please check out his crowdfunding fundraiser for his book, Out of the Darkness. And I want to thank you so much for tuning in to the Pagan Perspectives podcast. And I want to leave you with another song by Kellyanna, The Ancient's Song. Blessed be.
honoring the ones who came before us. Honor.